how can women be made in the image of God if God cannot be imagined in female form? Hello and welcome. You're listening to the podcast where being labeled a heretic is a good thing. We're starting conversations about God, politics, sexuality, spiritual formation, how we got here, and how to move forward post-evangelicalism. Nothing is off-limits in our conversations with scholars, seekers, activists, and writers in our quest to uncover the heart of faith. Welcome to Holy Heretics. Hi, everyone. This is Gary Allen, and we are back today to continue the conversation about the divine feminine by looking at all the ways God is referenced in female imagery and female language throughout not only the biblical story, but also throughout church history. In our last episode, we introduced the concept of Sophia, or Lady Wisdom, as well as the ancient understanding of God, our Mother. And yet, God the Father, God the Holy Spirit, God the Son— have been handed down to us by institutional Christianity as men, a triune male God with he, him pronouns. In almost every way, we've come to believe God is a guy, but in so doing, the church has misgendered divinity. Like misgendering a person, when we just assume God's pronouns are he, him, we not only mistake God's gender, but in so doing, we create harmful theologies and harmful ways of being. Using correct pronouns for God is a first step toward deconstructing the white male God and creating not only a more inclusive understanding of the divine, but also a more inclusive, kind, compassionate understanding of ourselves and the world around us. So I want to continue this conversation today as we dive deeper into what it means to see the world through the lens of the divine feminine. And I would hope that even the most toxic Theobro would agree the world is out of balance. The dark shadow side of masculinity has ruled the world and our way of being for far too long. And when the masculine and the feminine are out of balance, the natural result is chaos. And centering God as male and men as gods is a large part of that problem. If we see God only as maleness, maleness becomes more godlike than femaleness. Maleness becomes the nature of God and the norm for humankind, rather than simply one of its manifestations. In short, and we've quoted this on social media lately, as Mary Daly wrote, if God is male, the male is God. And this male-dominated theology has created a male-dominator culture that manifests itself politically, socially, sexually, religiously, and economically in things like pragmatism patriotism, persecution, capitalism, greed, aggression, emotionally stunted people, egoism, hierarchy, exclusion, bigotry, ignorance, fear, and all of these things that are male attributes or at least toxic understandings of male attributes has the planet on the precipice of total destruction. Just about everything we see and participate in today stems from an understanding that God is a guy and that men and the way men think and see and act should be the default mechanism for everyone. And whether it's a failure to steward the planet, raping the planet of her natural resources, the ongoing male threat of war, or the hierarchical way in which social life is structured, this male God has created a male-dominated world, and in many ways it's killing us. 
especially women, especially the other, especially the marginalized. Institutionalizing God, as the church has done, as a guy, has resulted in a patriarchal world where one-fifth of women are sexually abused as children, where 61 million girls are missing due to infanticide, neglect, and abortion, where 10,000 girls become child brides every day, where two-thirds of the illiterate adults on the planet are women, where one in three women have experienced some form of physical violence, where one in seven women have been injured by partner physical violence, or where 19.3 million women have been stalked in their lifetime. If you are a woman, I'm sure these stats not only resonate you, but my guess is many of you have been the victim of some of these things. Rosemary Radford Ruther wrote, Domination of women has provided a key link, both socially and symbolically, to the domination of earth. Hence the tendency in patriarchal cultures to link women with earth, matter, and nature, while identifying males with sky, intellect, and transcendent spirit. And even if we threw all those horrible stats out, even if the only impact of the male god was the silencing of women, it still makes women in the best case scenario invisible in our churches, in our homes, and even in our places of work. As Sister Joan Chittister writes in her book, Women's Strength, the symbolic evidence of women's invisibility in the human race is most clear, perhaps, in her suppression, her camouflage, her negation, even in language. Women are subsumed, excised, erased by male pronouns, by male terminology, by male prayers about brotherhood and brethren, even and always by exclusively male images of God. The tradition that will call God spirit, rock, key door, wind, and bird will never, ever call God mother. So much for the creative womb of God. So much for the I who am. So much for let us make human beings in our image, male and female. Let us make them all. What kind of spirituality is that? To take the position that using two pronouns for the human race is not important in a culture that has 30 words for car, multiple words for flowers, and dozens of words for dog breeds is to say that women aren't important. And yet, there has always been a vocal minority recognizing the many pronouns for God, including he, him, she, her, and they, them. And this is partly because God does not have a gender. God transcends our limited understanding of gender as well as our dualistic approach to gender. Thomas Aquinas, who was an influential 13th century Catholic theologian, asserted that individuals can talk about God in ways that are true but always inadequate. Aquinas explained that our language about God affirms something about God, yet God is always beyond that which we can express through language. We talk about truths about God in human terms and constructs, but since God is mystery, God is always beyond those categories. It's also important to realize all language about God is ultimately metaphorical. But our metaphors for God matter. One of the most ancient metaphorical understandings and expressions of divinity is seen in the metaphor God as womb of the world. And speaking of God as the womb from which we are all created from, this is linked in the Hebrew scriptures to the idea of compassion. Compassion and womb go together. From Marcus Borg's book, Meeting Jesus Again for the First Time, he shares this insight into the interconnection between God's womb-like nature 
in God's compassion. The Hebrew word for compassion, whose singular form means womb, is often used to describe God in the Old Testament. The Hebrew word used first to describe compassion is rakhum, which we translate in English as compassionate. The noun, verb, and adjective form of this word are all related to the Hebrew word for womb, which is rakim. Now, this direct link between compassion and womb draws out the nurturing feminine side of God. Compassion is often translated as merciful in the characterization of God as gracious and merciful, and it's present in that quite wonderful expression found in Jeremiah 31 that we read as follows. And this is God talking. Is not Ephraim my dear son, the child in whom I delight? Though I often speak against him, I still remember him. Therefore, my heart yearns for him. I have great compassion for him, declares the Lord. The Hebrew Bible speaks frequently of God as compassionate with resonances of womb close to hand. And we fast forward then to the New Testament where Jesus references the compassion of God, and he seems to trump the phrase, and we all remember it from our evangelical childhoods, be holy as I am holy. Jesus replaces that phrase with be compassionate as God is compassionate, or to translate it with this new link, be womb-like as God is womb-like. For Jesus, compassion is the central quality of God. To say that God is compassionate is to say that God is like a womb. And what does it suggest to say that God is like a womb? Well, it's metaphoric, it's evocative, but the phrase and its associative image provocatively suggest a number of connotations. Like a womb, God is the one who gives birth to all of us. She is the mother who gives birth to the world. And just like a mother loves the children of her womb and feels for the children of her womb, so God loves us and feels for us, for all of her children. And in a sense, like a womb means compassionate. And it hints at the nuances of giving life, of nourishing, of caring, of perhaps even embracing and encompassing our nurturing aspects as human beings as well. And for Jesus, this is what God is like. God is womb-like. God is compassionate. And therefore, to complete this imitatio deo, to be compassionate as God is compassionate, is for us to be like a womb or to be like God as womb-like. It is to feel as God feels and to act as God acts in a life-giving, nourishing, and protective way. So for us to be called to be compassionate is what it means in the New Testament by this somewhat more abstract command to love. Compassion and love go together in the same way that compassion and being womb-like go together. And for Jesus, compassion is this central quality of life faithful to God, who is the author and source of compassion. And God is womb-like is just one of the many female images of divinity that we find in Scripture. The Genesis narratives show us that divine image is manifest in male and female form. Genesis 1 declares, God created human beings in his own image. In the image of God, he created them male and female. So here at the very beginning of the biblical text, we get a glimpse of the totality of God, balanced eternally with divine masculine and divine feminine attributes. 
to reference Borg again in his book, The God We Never Knew, he candidly wonders, how can women be made in the image of God if God cannot be imagined in female form? The Hebrew scriptures then unfold post-Genesis 1, giving us a glimpse of God as a gentle and compassionate caregiver. God is described as a birthing mother who formed Israel in her womb. In Deuteronomy, we read, You forget the rock who begot you, unmindful of the God who gave you birth. Isaiah quotes God as saying, I groan like a woman in labor. I will gasp and pant. And later on in Isaiah, he gives us an even more explicit understanding of God as mother. Can a mother forget the baby at her breast and have no compassion on the child she has born? And all of these images continue this theme of God as womb of the world, which is, of course, entirely feminine. We fast forward a bit to Hosea in Hosea eleven three through 4, and again we see God described as a mother. Yet it was I who taught Ephraim to walk, I who took them up in my arms, but they did not know that I healed them. I led them with cords of human kindness, with bands of love. I was to them like those who lift infants to their cheeks. I bent down to them and fed them. Hosea 13, 8, God is described as a mama bear. Like a bear robbed of her cubs, I will attack them and tear them asunder. All of these verses remind me of a saying by Christian mystic Meister Eckhart, who wrote, What does God do all day? God gives birth. From all eternity, God lies on a maternity bed giving birth. Now, I mentioned Sophia or divine wisdom in our last episode, but if you can just indulge me for a minute, I'd love to return to that concept here. Sophia is the Greek word for wisdom, and she was the earliest feminine personification of God found in the Hebrew Bible. She appears in the book of Job and the book of Proverbs and the canonical scriptures. In Proverbs, she is said to have existed before the creation of the world as the first fruits of God's creation. In the apocryphal book of Sirach, wisdom or Sophia represents the Torah. She is a universal and cosmic force associated with the history and covenant law of Israel. The apocryphal wisdom of Solomon contains a retelling of the salvation history of Israel using Sophia imagery instead of Yahweh imagery, which I really find fascinating. Elizabeth Johnson, in her book, She Who Is, which I strongly recommend, gives us five possible interpretations of the theological significance of Sophia. First, Sophia is the personification of the cosmic order, representing the meaning God has implanted in creation. Second, Sophia is the personification of wisdom. Third, Sophia is the symbol of the divine attribute of God's discerning intelligence. Fourth, she is a quasi-independent divine mediator between the material world and a totally transcendent God. I really like that, Sophia as this mediator between worlds, someone that enlightens us and introduces us to God, God so far removed from us. And then fifth, Sophia is the female personification of God's own being in creative and saving involvement in the world. You might remember from our previous episode, we first meet Sophia or Lady Wisdom in Proverbs, where she cries out, You, my God, created me when your purpose first unfolded, before the oldest of your works. 
From everlasting, I was firmly set. From the beginning before earth came into being, the deep was not when I was born. There were no springs to gush with water before the mountains were settled. Before the hills, I came to birth. Before you made the earth, the countryside, or the first grains of the world's dust, when you fixed the heavens firm, I, Sophia, was there. When you drew a ring on the surface of the deep, when you thickened the clouds above and fixed fast the springs of the deep, when you assigned the sea its boundaries so the waters could not disobey you, and when you laid the foundations of the earth, I was by your side as a unique craftswoman, delighting you day after day at play everywhere in the world, delighted to be among the human family. I love that translation. Sophia is seen participating with God in the creation of all things. And some of the early church fathers associated Sophia with Christ. But here in Proverbs, Lady Wisdom speaks and says, I was with God in the beginning of all things. In Genesis, when we read, let us make man in our own image, one way to interpret that in our own image is that God is kind of looking at Sophia and saying, Lady Wisdom, Sophia, let you and I create man and woman in our image, male and female. So Sophia is the first of God's works, God's female companion in the creation of the cosmos. And I must admit, this concept is mysterious. It's hard to define. Um, It's even quite honestly hard to understand. We see Sophia again in the Book of Wisdom or the Wisdom of Solomon, which is a Jewish work uh, written in Greek and, and most likely composed in Alexandria, Egypt, where there was a growing esoteric mystical version of Christianity. And the wisdom of Solomon was has generally been dated to the mid-first century. And in it we read, For she, wisdom Sophia, is a reflection of eternal light, a spotless mirror of the working of God, and an image of God's goodness. The first person to develop the persona of Sophia as this divine feminine nature and co-creator with God was Philo of Alexandria, who happened to be a contemporary of St. Paul. And though Sophia and Sophiology is, again, difficult to pin down or describe, for German theologian uh, Jacob Baum, Sophia is a distinct personification of the divine feminine. She is one who is structurally different from the Christ and necessary for the birth of the Trinity. For Baum, Sophia serves as the bond between creator and creation. And Greek philosophy saw Sophia as the goddess of wisdom, as the creative power that formed the cosmos out of original chaos. There is also a direct link between Sophia and the universal Christ. I mentioned the Alexandrian church earlier, but many of the Alexandrian fathers noticed how Paul described the Christ in Sophianic terms as the wisdom of God and the image of the invisible God, this Christ figure who was the firstborn of all creation. Alexandrian Christology developed from this a long tradition of seeing Sophia as the pre-creation of Christ, or even uh, linked together with the Logos. 
Father Richard Rohr helps us kind of unpack this difficult conversation and this fascinating link between Sophia and Logos or Sophia and the universal Christ. He says, in the first chapter of John, what the author says about the Word of God was also said about Sophia in the Jewish tradition. This was seen in Proverbs 8. Sophia says she was with God in the very beginning, before all his created works. And in John, we read that the Word or the Logos was with God and was God. Just as the Word was with God and was God, so Sophia was with God, and potentially was God. And so when John writes that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us as Jesus, he could just as well have said that Sophia became flesh and dwelt among us as Jesus, giving Jesus this eternal, universal, divine, feminine nature. Jesus seems to be, at least to us, the wisdom or Sophia of God incarnate. And so although we know Jesus historically as a man, the nature behind his work and teaching and ministry was feminine, was linked to this Logos and Sophia. And we not only see the divine feminine in all of these biblical accounts, but honestly throughout the rest of church history. According to the writers of the Braided Way, there has always been a goddess in Christianity, but she has been hidden for long enough. Veneration of the Divine Mother continued in pockets of Christian groups who weren't completely wiped out by Roman imperial Christianity. Communities like the Gnostics, the Essenes, the Cathars, the Celtic Christians, the Templars, the Rosicrucians, and other mystics kept that underground stream from trickling out and kept the flame of the goddess burning into the 21st century. In the oldest stories of many lands, the creative generative essence of the universe is female. Even Jesus spoke of the goddess often, but the books that mention it unsurprisingly weren't included in the Bible or were mistranslated to edit out the goddess. The church wanted to keep patriarchal control and remove the goddess from Christianity, and yet today she's she's being revealed. One example way back from church history involves 14th century English mystic Julian of Norwich, who lived from 1342 to 1416. In her book, The Revelations of Divine Love, which is widely acknowledged, by the way, as one of the great classics of the spiritual life, Julian is thought to have been the first woman to write a book in English which has survived which is kind of a cool tidbit. Julian's Revelations of Divine Love is based on a series of 16 visions she received on May 8, 1373. She was lying on what she thought at the time was her deathbed when suddenly she saw Christ bleeding in front of her. Julian saw God as both mother and father, and she called Jesus our true mother, from whom we receive our being, our true protection and love. In chapter 59, she writes, Our highest Father, God Almighty, who is being, has always known us and loved us. Because of this knowledge, through His marvelous and deep charity and with unanimous consent of the Blessed Trinity, He wanted the second person to be our mother, our brother, our Savior. It is thus logical that God, being our Father, be also our mother. Our Father desires, our Mother operates, and our good Lord, the Holy Ghost, confirms. 
we are thus well advised to love our God through whom we have our being. And then she goes on to say, Jesus Christ, therefore, who himself overcame evil with good, is our true mother. We receive from mother, and this is where his maternity starts. And when it comes, the gentle protection and guard of love, which will never cease to surround us. Just as God is our father, so God is also our mother. Another medieval mystic was respected abbess, Hildegard of Bingen. And she imagined the feminine side of God in her artistry and in her writings. And she had a vision in which she encountered uh, the divine feminine. And she describes it this way. I heard a voice speaking to me. The young woman whom you see is love. She has her tent in eternity. It was love which was the source of this creation in the beginning when God said, let it be. And it was. As though in the blinking of an eye, the whole creation was formed through love. The young woman is radiant in such a clear, lightning-like brilliance of countenance that you can't fully look at her. She holds the sun and moon in her right hand and embraces them tenderly. The whole of creation calls this maiden lady. And even dating back to the Middle Ages, Hildegard recognized that when women come into their own, there will be an end to the power over dynamics that have blighted the planet. Instead of the reigning powers of patriarchy, it's only the integration of a healthy, sacred, masculine, and a resurrected divine feminine that can save us from our destructive ways. So as you can see, the divine feminine has always been here. With us in her tenderness and her veracity, she is pictured as gentle as a dove and as savage as a mama bear. She is our birthing mother. She is our protector. She is divine wisdom who was with God in the very beginning. She is linked to the Christ or Logos who was with God and is God. And honestly, no matter what religious tradition you find yourself a part of, she's there. She's she's here. Seeing the ultimate source of our being as mother unites the entire human race. She frees us from this competition with one another or with resources. She frees us from warring with one another or devising structures and systems of hierarchy and domination and oppression. To see God as mother is to see one another as brother and sisters of the same source. So I'd like to close with just some additional words from Anne Baring as she pleads, As part of awakening to the presence of the divine feminine, it is surely time for women of every nation, religion, and ethnic group to say, enough is enough. There must be an end to this slaughter, rape, and interminable suffering. There is another way forward. And this way forward is calling to us from this long silenced voice of the feminine that is needed to heal the wasteland of our world, the current state of the planet, and the lives of billions of men, women, and children that are blighted or destroyed by human cruelty, greed, pragmatism, and ignorance. Centuries of conflict between nations, religions, and ethnic groups have brought us to the present time when we must find a way of transcending this archaic pattern of behavior built on and patterned after the male God. Otherwise, we honestly risk destroying the planet. Will we choose to imitate the patterns of our patriarchal past, 
Or can we embrace the truly immense transformation of consciousness we will need to make it if we wish to forge a different future for coming generations? Bering writes, I truly believe the only way we survive as a species is if we reintroduce ourselves to the Divine Mother. We live in a world dangerously lacking in love, a world where the powerful dominate the weak, and we need to call on Mama to protect us, to guard us, to guide us. We need the fierce love of the Divine Mother and the womb-like compassion she provides to balance out toxic masculinity. So what are some practical ways that you can reintroduce the divine feminine into your spiritual practices and into your life in the physical world? And how would you change if you were able to tap into this ancient stream of feminine consciousness? How might you align your body and spirit with this divine energetic source? If you happen to have lost touch with the divine feminine, Remember that attributes like intuition, gut feelings, compassion, collaboration, nurturing, creativity, empathy, reciprocity, and acceptance are all aspects of living into the divine feminine nature. And by the way, there are also warrior characteristics that come from mama as well, like a loving mother protecting her young tapping into justice-centered activities and motivations that protect the weak and place yourself in between oppressors and the oppressed are also ways that the divine feminine can manifest herself in the world. As Jesus said, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how I long to gather you like a mother hen under my wings. He's connoting the scene of a barn fire where a mother hen have been known to gather their hens underneath them to protect them from the flames. But in so doing, mama dies. And I hope you hear me out that the divine feminine isn't some weak, passive presence of just accepting what a male-dominated world gives her. She is also incredibly fierce. She is a warrior, this divine feminine is portrayed throughout many cultures and religions as a goddess of destruction. The divine feminine is portrayed in India by the great black Kali as a disrupting force. She doesn't just come in to destroy, but she comes in to disrupt the status quo in order to recreate a new world. And in the process, what she destroys is sin and arrogance and decayed systems of oppression. So just know that this female energy isn't necessarily limited just to women. Anyone can live into this source of our being as we tap into these attributes. For too long, our world has been dominated by the shadow side of masculinity, and it's a force preoccupied with having power over. Or hierarchy. And when masculine energy became corrupt, what at the fall, when it overshadowed and outbalanced the divine feminine, what it did was it created a toxic patriarchal society based on domination and control. And eventually it's going to kill us. It's past time to bring the divine feminine out of the shadows and into the light, out from only the mystic corners of Christianity and into mainstream faith. 
So I hope those of us in the deconstruction community can lean into reimagining God as feminine, using God's pronouns correctly, and living into those divine sources of female energy. And I'll leave you with a word from Hildegard of Bingen, who said of Lady Wisdom, our Divine Mother, she is so bright and glorious that you cannot look at her face or her garments for the splendor with which she shines. For she is terrible with the terror of the avenging lightning and gentle with the goodness of the bright sun. And both her terror and her gentleness are incomprehensible to humans. But she is with everyone and in everyone. And so beautiful is her secret that no person can know the sweetness with which she sustains people and spares them in inscrutable mercy. Hey, thanks for joining me as we talk about this two-part conversation about the Divine Feminine. We are almost finished with Season 3. We have a couple of more interviews before we give it a wrap for the summer. But in the interim, we would love to encourage you to join us on Patreon. We are kind of in in a financial crisis, if you will. Uh, here at Holy Heretics. I don't want to use that word uh, overtly or to scare people, but we could use your help to continue into season four and into the future as we continue to carve out this sacred space. So if you would like to join us at any level on Patreon, you can go to patreon.com slash holyheretics, and there you will see our Liminal Spaces e-newsletter, You'll see our online course, Making Sense of the Bible Post-Deconstruction. You'll receive every podcast episode a few days early. And you'll also just join our community of friends and partners walking this sacred pilgrim way. So thanks for considering that. And I look forward to seeing you next time. Thank you for joining us. This episode was produced by the Sophia Society and written by Gary Allen Taylor. Music is by Faith and Foxholes. If you need more resources to guide your spiritual journey, head to sophiasociety.org for articles, resources, and our free ebook on faith deconstruction. And before we go, will you consider joining us on Patreon? Your partnership allows us to continue creating this sacred space for seekers like you. By becoming a patron, you gain early access to each podcast episode, as well as premium content and an exclusive invitation to join our monthly online community. Simply sign up at patreon.com slash holyheretics. See you next time.